Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchwork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor-in-chief. And I'm the Review's director, Jeremy Larson. Today we're talking about the Oscars. This year, two of the films nominated for Best Picture are about larger-than-life musical talents. There's Baz Luhrmann's dramatic Elvis biopic, which got eight nominations, and Tar, a psychological thriller starring Kate Blanchett that received six nominations. And a little later, we'll hear from two nominees themselves. David Byrne and Sunlux, who are up for Best Original Song. So definitely stick around for that. Here with us now to talk about all of it is Features Editor Jill Mapes. Hello, Jill. Hi, how's it going? Welcome to Music's Biggest Night. It's Music's Biggest Night. (laughs) I don't care what anybody else says. Hey, Jill. Hey, what's up? So let's talk about the movie that everybody can't stop talking about. A story of musical genius, a story about a kind of enigma of a woman. The movie is Tar. Jeremy, for folks who haven't seen it, tell us what Tar is about. Sure. Well, to borrow a line that was made famous by Missy Elliott, the tagline (laughs) for this movie could very well be, music makes you lose control. (laughs) Tar uh, is written and directed by Todd Field. The plot is about a fictional composer named Lydia Tar, who is at the apex of her long and storied career as she prepares to conduct the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra through Mahler's Fifth Symphony. Uh, It's an imposing and tricky piece that would make her the first woman to conduct all of Mahler's symphonies. Along the way to this performance, we see a heated discussion about Bach and identity politics at a classroom in Juilliard, an increasingly unsturdy marriage to the Philharmonic's first chair violinist, played by the wonderful Nina Haas, and her assistant, played by uh, Naomi Merlent, who knows where all of Lydia Tarr's bodies are buried. When we find out former mentee of Lydia Tarr has killed herself, we start to put some of the puzzle pieces together that Lydia Tarr may be much more and much less than her autobiography, Tar on Tar, suggests. Thank you, Jeremy. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. I will, I will say, because this character is so complex, some of the resonance of this movie has become so that people can't tell whether Lydia Tarr is a real person or not. Right. There was an article published in Vulture a month or so ago that was like, what, 26 questions you need to know about Lydia Tarr. Or facts. Facts you need Mm -hmm. to know about Lydia Tarr. And the joke, obviously, is that Lydia Tarr is a fictional character. But I think it's because of Kate Blanchett's embodiment of this person that makes it feel so real. And it's part of like her 
talent as an actor and how lived in and meticulous and quotidian this world is that you're like, oh, clearly this must be a real person. Everything about this is real except for Lydia Tarr. And maybe there is a larger metaphor to be gleaned about that. Too. Right. Jill, you wrote this piece for Pitchfork about Tar in another movie that we'll be talking about, Elvis, and what they both mean about the state of music movies today. And you wrote in that that Tar, quote, bites at almost every controversy of the day, from Me Too to girl bossing to the destruction of an artistic canon centered around white men. I think you're correct. <laughs> um Can you kind of explain why this felt so kind of impactful and revelatory to so many people? So um, I saw it again for a second time last week, and I was struck by just how many— In the theaters. In the theaters. You went back to the theater to see it. Yes. Amazing movie to see in theater. Yeah. Incredible sound design, the way the score is worked in. We'll get to that later. But the piece that you're talking about and that doesn't shy away from controversy at the same— moment, it also doesn't like give you an answer. You mm-hmm. don't even know mm-hmm. exactly what is real and what's not real. And obviously it's a film. None of it's real, but it also feels so real that it has people talking so much about, is there this shift into a dream world? And all of this, like, what does the ending mean? It's that kind of movie. One of the best things about this film is that it is made in present day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So all of the controversies that are happening within it are things that have happened in real time in the music industry, but also in the theater industry, in the orchestral community, in every single field. For me, I also felt like these questions are really relevant to like what we do every day, the conversations we have, like... Like, it's timely, you know, but it's also like she has the Dresden Philharmonic being the orchestra that she's conducting, like the actual Philharmonic. You know, Kate Blanchett, when she started at the podium and she was starting these scenes to film these scenes, she said to the players, like, you're not actors and I'm not a composer. And basically Mm -hmm. to say, like, we're going to find a middle ground. And I think so much of the film is about that liminal space between this is being set in the actual classical musical world and these are problems that are really people are hashing out in institutions. Something that I said to Jeremy beforehand was that this was a quiet movie. And Jeremy, you were like, actually, it's a loud movie. Why do you think it's a quiet movie? So the score was made by Hildur Gunnadotter, who is in many ways a kind of influence of the character of Lydia Tarr in that she is a rare woman in this space. She is one award away from egotting in the movie Lydia Tarr has just egotted. And apparently Todd Field said I want Kate Blanchett first, and then the second person that I want to make this movie that I need to have this movie is Hilder. Mm. I thought that was fascinating because she is a study of what Lydia Tarr might aspire to be or might reflect, though a very, very lovely and gentle person by all accounts. Yeah, to um, be clear. <laughs> but I thought something that was like extremely interesting was that Hilder had created tempo mapping for the movie, and this doesn't appear on the score, it doesn't appear on the soundtrack. Um, in the movie, there is this like metronome that goes off and kind of starts haunting Lydia Tarr. It's locked in a cabinet. She very rarely picks it out to use herself, but it is sometimes awakens her in the middle of the night and she is just like this highlighted metronome hiding in a cabinet. For this movie, Hilder created an entire sound map for the actors 
and directors to use and listen to as they were literally acting. Mm -hmm. And I think because I knew of all of this like subtle behind the scenes soundtracking that was happening that then ultimately part of of a climactic point or a tense point in a movie is like you hear your heartbeat and you start feeling it racing. And we know that that was composed behind the scenes. Like Hilder literally wrote music for the scene to be acted at a certain BPM, which then influences how we feel about it. And it made all of the quiet parts of the movie feel so much more intense. Right. I know what you mean by quiet. I guess I think there's so much in this movie about noise and background noise Mm -hmm. and that something like an eerie scream. Like there's a moment when Lydia Tarr is running and she just hears like a a woman's scream in Mm -hmm. the background. And there's this quote in the movie with, uh, from, like, Schopenhauer. Yes, where like, the Schopenhauer A man's quote. sensitivity, I'm maybe transposing this wrong, but, like, you can tell a man's genius by his sensitivity to noise, yeah. right? And, like, the fact that she sort of keeps hearing these buzzing and this sort of thing, like, to me, like, that gets me this thing of being, like a, like, a loud movie. But I also think it's a very slow, like, purposely slow movie. One of my favorite scenes, and actually, like, one of my favorite music cues in the movie is not classical music at all. It's when Lydia Tarr comes home to her wife, played by Nina Haas. Nina Haas is like, her her heart is racing. She like needs her pills, which (laughs) Lydia Tarr has taken all of and is like Munchhouse syndroming her. To calm her down, she she says something like, let's bring this down to 60 beats per minute and puts on like this Count Basie record. Mm -hmm. And they just start to like hold each other Mm -hmm. and dance. And then Nina Haas says like, actually it's 53 beats per minute. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's like a perfect conversation between music nerds. I want to counterpoint one of your favorite music moments with mine, which is like so loud that it is like maybe the loudest moment of the film, which is Lydia Tarr staying in this apartment she's had more in the center of Berlin for a long time. And she's like kind of on the rocks with her wife. So it's kind of a rough time. Neighbors hear her playing piano a lot uh, and they come by and she thinks they're paying them a compliment when they're like, we heard the piano. And she's like, oh, thank you. And then like (laughs) closes the door like I'll be here all week. And then they're like, can you let us know basically like what times you're not going to be playing so we don't scare off people who want to buy this this apartment we own. And like she's so offended that she just throws her little hissy fit and her little hissy fit is like to get this accordion and she's like apartment for sale apartment (laughs) for sale like the worst sounding shit I wish they would release that. Where can I get like the the like one and a half minute version of Apartment for Sale? <laughs> Are you sure it's not on the, the soundtrack? I don't think it is. Oh. I know there is a t-shirt that you can get that says Apartment for Sale, like t- tar. I realize the extent to which this movie has become like a huge meme. It's a huge meme. Wow. It's wild. What do you think that's about? Is it just like Lydia Tarr being Lydia Tarr. over the top, like just, like icon, just, as like the kids would say? Lydia Tarr run me over with a truck, that kind of thing. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. for sure. Yeah. I mean, I also wonder how much of it is that this is a space wherein music is considered highbrow, mm-hmm. and so much of, I mean, it's kind of like. <laughs> 
Oscars love making movies about films. We've talked about that. But, like, Oscar soundtracks are also, like, the graduation of a musical artist is, like, mm. I'm Trent Reznor How you get and that I'm EGOT. composing. Yeah, How exactly. You or you're and, a pop star and you do the big franchise song. And, I, yeah. I mean, I do remember in that film interview, Hilder was making a joke about how people consider concert music the highest level of the music hierarchy where it's like highest comes concert music then comes film music and then comes everything else well that's it's so funny because like okay spoilers for the end of the movie tar coming up but the end of the movie after sort of tar is sees the consequences of her actions and meets with her management team and they're just like all right we're gonna start slow and rebuild your career and she ends up conducting a symphony who is playing video game music mm-hmm. somewhere in Monster the Philippines. Hunter. Monster mm-hmm. Hunter. <laughs> somewhere in the Philippines and the camera pans to the audience and they're all wearing Monster Hunter costumes. Mm-hmm. And the reaction in my theater was like shocked laughter. Mm-hmm. There was definitely some laughter and there was definitely just this sort of what the fuck? Like holy cow, this is the ending of this movie. But what you said is that like Monster Hunter is more popular than Mahler by a factor of a thousand, right? right. right? Like, so she's doing this thing that is now like actually popular right. and, and people actually sort of like have these passionate feelings about, not the saying that people don't have passionate feelings about Mahler, but like that's like more recognizable than the New Yorker Festival or, mm-hmm. or finishing Mahler's symphonic cycle with the Berlin Philharmonic, you know? Like mm-hmm. that's what I find so, so ironic, again, subjective about this movie and like what it has to say about art and music. That's why this movie just sits in my head. Constantly, incredible movie. Incredible uh, movie. Very quick. What what do we think it's going to win? So, Tar is up for best picture, best actress, best director, cinematography, editing, and screenplay. Kate Blanchett's got to win actress. I think she already has two awards. I would love for it to go to Michelle Yeoh for Everything Everywhere All at Once. But I, Kate Blanchett is so good in this. She's so unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I think she deserves it. I don't know that she will win it. Right. I could see Tara winning. We've been talking about, like, screenplay. Yes, for sure. Seems obvious because it's just so masterfully written. Maybe best director for Todd Field. He's obviously made himself incredibly scarce and come back after quite a long time with this masterpiece. So to me, I think those are the three awards um, that are on the table. I think screenplay most, if that doesn't get it, then that's I don't. That's the ring. That's the, the that sure has to one. Get it. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm with you. I feel like Michelle and Kate are neck and neck. I think everything everywhere all at once is going to win picture personally. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Well, speaking of awards, another music-focused film, one that we felt a little bit differently about, though divisive, is the Baz Luhrmann Elvis biopic, also nominated for a bunch of things. We've got Austin Butler as Elvis, nominated for Best Actor. For those who don't know the entire history of Elvis, (laughs) Jill, 
Will you will you just give us the quick rundown of this two hour and 40 minute long movie? Yeah, I just want to say that uh, the history of Elvis the human is different than the history of Elvis the film, um, as most biopics uh, are one to be mm-hmm. these days. But uh, the way that the Elvis story is told in this film is through the lens of Colonel Tom Parker, who is his villainous Dutch manager who was like a carny who was trying to be like a P.T. Barnum when um, you see in the film how they set it up is that he hears Elvis on the radio and assumes that he is a black performer and him and a bunch of country singers are sitting around talking about the rhythms, like all this like terror and his terrible terrible accent like (laughs) I can't played by Tom Hanks played by Tom Hanks well this fella's on the hayride tonight after me in the newcomer spot. In Shreveport? <laughs> no, they are not putting a colored boy on the hayride. That's a thing. He's white. He's, He's white? Show business is snow business. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of those accents where he it's probably like super accurate, but it sounds very inaccurate. Maybe I, 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 that's that's being the most charitable with a performance that I would like to see excised from this entire movie. The relationship between Elvis and his manager it was like known to be pretty yeah. fraught, but I think it also gave way for the story to like put some of the decision making on the manager instead of on the like mythological creature and singer himself, right? Yeah, I felt that it it actually if its aim was to humanize Elvis, I feel like it made him look like a helpless child with an amazing gift mm-hmm. who is just stuck in a prison of this man who can't leave the country who puts him into these casino deals. Anyway, mm-hmm. Colonel Tom Parker finds out Elvis is white, as he <laughs> as he keeps saying, white. <laughs> so he races off. There is a full-on, like, Dust Bowl, like, racing scene to go sign Elvis. So he... so. Elvis is signed by Colonel Tom Parker. He becomes famous. Yada, yada, yada. You know all the good stuff. And if you don't, then like. Then this movie basically makes a montage of it for you. Yeah, for the first a montage minutes. with like songs that have like Diplo remixes. Mm-hmm. Like it's like bad mega mix with like hip hop fudged in. You ain't nothing but a. Play getting valet running that whole whip. Two fingers up, one down with my toes ten. Flewed out my boots, I'll put a cork in it. Love it when you be crying out when I'm corset it. I don't think you gonna make it. Do not let me start raging. So basically, like, they try to, I don't want to say fix history, but almost, like, own history that is uncomfortable in a way that is over-the-top and campy, and it inherently doesn't feel like accurate or like respectful to the level that they do it to like this this he's white scene it's like uh-huh. yes thank you <laughs> like you're pointing out that african american performers in that era no matter how talented they were could not have the opportunities like you're literally showing how the industry thought in a scene that is ridiculous or like the fact that elvis keeps going back to beale street in memphis and hanging out with his friends in the clubs there and... B.B. King, Little Richard, Sister Rosetta Tharp all kind of make cameos. The end of the film just gets really hazy be- and dark because 
things are clearly going downhill and Colonel Tom Parker just keeps signing Elvis up for more and more performances. And like Parker just kind of keeps him trapped in a casino until he takes drugs and dies. That's basically the film. <laughs> I know I'm like dumbing this down greatly. Well, no, this you're not. Is... I think it's what you're doing is describing the film exactly. And that's the issue of the film is that yeah. like it is just it brushes over large swathes of Elvis's career. So oh, this gets at a kind of central thing. I happen to be, as you know, at the premiere of Elvis uh-huh. with the cast of Elvis. And I will say there was a pointed kind of statement from Baz Luhrmann at the opening ahead of the screening that was like, we are trying to make a more correct narrative, knowing that this is not. Oh, that makes me so upset. (laughs) Knowing that this, knowing that like this isn't, this can't, you can't paint the whole story of someone's life in a movie like this. Maybe you should try. (laughs) And they had, and they had, you know, Yola up there, who is a singer, who is Mm -hmm. a former Grammy nominee, who plays Sister Rosetta Tharp. And they had the actors who play B.B. King and Little Richard up there. And there was this kind of like earnest, to me, there was like this earnest sense from the folks in the room that we're trying to make something that is entertaining, that connects Elvis, you know, boomer parent, heartthrob Elvis Mm -hmm. to... The youth. And when you talk about Baz Luhrmann, you're talking about like confetti poppers and just like bright lights, big city and on adrenaline. I mean, his whole thing is style over substance. Yeah. Like forever. I think something that is very interesting to me and kind of curious to me is this is a music movie that is central to the catalog of one of the most famous American musicians of our time. There's so much music that is like sung by Elvis um, or sung by Austin Butler as Elvis or played as in B-roll or whatever, right? There's so much Elvis music in the movie. But then there is this like 20 song, let's say, soundtrack that is made by contemporary artists. Mm -hmm. Some of the biggest artists of our like current day, um, Doja Cat, Diplo, Jasmine Sullivan, um, Sway Lee, I think. Yeah, Casey he's Musgraves. On a Diplo song. Eminem. I was struck specifically by this moment, right? There's a lot of hemming and hawing specifically about Elvis being on Beale Street, which is, you know, famous for a lot of black musicians and art and the kind of community. And there is the scene when Elvis is moving his hips too much and he's getting, I'm pretty sure this is what it is. He's like moving his hips too much and he's basically like, they want to, they're saying I'm moving too much. And so he's like, I got to get back to my roots. And he is like driving to Beale Street and it's like all like fast cut, like extra, extra, extra. All of a sudden there's like Denzel Curry coming out of the speakers as you see B.B. King and Sister Rosetta Tharp. Mm-hmm. It's Denzel Curry's voice. I've been through hell and back, many obstacles. They said I couldn't do the impossible. My life's an open book, it's an audible. Been in the public eye like a monocle. Call me a superstar, astronomical. I got the vibe from the side of this colorful. You call it ghetto, but I call it wonderful. Do what they say, what I do, what I want to do. The second Elvis walks into the club, it's Little Richard doing Tutti Frutti. Mm-hmm. And 
it's just like an ADD of sound, you know, it's, and so super cut that it's almost like a luxury of riches, you know, like the licensing, the cost of the music of this film alone is so much that I, I kind of want to ask just like, how does this serve the story of Elvis, you know? Well, here's here's the thing. So like when he went on like the Milton Berle show and famously just sort of like started moving his hips and mm-hmm. dancing in this way that everybody thought was the devil and they, you know, like they're just mm-hmm. like, this is lewd and we're going to arrest you, whatever. The camera just stood on him. Right. There wasn't 60 different cuts of moving around this side and the other thing. You were just drawn in by the magnetism of Elvis. And that and that's what like bothered me so much about this movie is that there was never more than a three-second shot on Austin Butler, who I think is incredibly magnetic and wonderful and like the saving grace of this movie by any and all yeah, accounts. And I'm sure by all of us in yeah. here. Like, but... The style of it, the all over the place of it, the maximalist version of it, like to me, doesn't get at the persona of Elvis. It just sort of like wants to take you on this ride, which to me felt like the Elvis halftime show, Mm -hmm. where it gives you just like a little bit of everything. And then you just leave feeling so thirsty and so hungry for an actual story or for like a moment where we could just see him perform suspicious minds, the whole thing. Just like give me something that like allows me deeper into this person. It, it, It made me very dizzy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I left being more connected to Elvis's music. Is that just like, Baz Luhrmann, though? Yeah, but that, that's and I and he made the movie that he wanted to make. But I don't know. Did you leave like more connected to Elvis's music? Like, were you like, I want to like put on Suspicious Minds and like, or I want to go back to Hound Dog? Even. I mean, no. And I think that's what's really interesting about the boom of biopics in the last few years because they seem at least partially motivated by catalog mm. and the fact that there's all this. What do you money. mean by catalog? Well, the fact that um, older artists catalog of songs uh-huh. they're publishing and the songs themselves are being sold more frequently by these outside firms that consider themselves like song management companies right so you have more biopics happening on people with large catalogs like bohemian rhapsody is something that felt very motivated mm-hmm. by a huge catalog and was also similarly very like done hackily so i do think that there's this element that's really funny about the elvis soundtrack that we're like why are all these contemporary people spending their time making Elvis mega mixes? That's like, this is supposed to renew musical interest in Elvis's catalog. And I can't imagine it doing that at all. And I actually feel like Austin Butler performing as Elvis is the best part of the movie. 100%. Which means, give it, this this man could be a Vegas Elvis. My daddy was a green eye. Can I ask if there was a musical performance that you liked? Um, Yeah. So one of the things that was like a little bit more classy and I feel like in line with the sonics of the original um, was Casey Musgraves covering Can't Help Falling in Love, which felt pretty faithful and pretty of the era. That was a later song for Elvis. Um, So it has that kind of that sheen to it where it is not rock and it is not over the top. For Falling in love with 
I'm now turning back on my previous opinion from five minutes ago, which is that it is kind of interesting that this soundtrack of contemporary music blended in enough into the chaos of this movie (laughs) that it's both like seamless and forgettable, but also didn't stand out in a way that was so jarring that I can remember it. I was distracted by <laughs> Hound Dog going into Doja Cat. Like that that sort of ripped me directly out of this movie. So Elvis is up for eight awards, best picture, best actor, costume design, cinematography, editing, makeup, production design, and sound. Tar was not up for sound. Which is wild. Um, what do we think they're going to win? Austin Butler, best actor. Sure. I hope that's all it wins, <laughs> respectfully, if they want to throw it a costume design. I think Austin Butler's going to win. Yeah, I, I am. I am nervous. It's going to win Best Picture. I just need you to be prepared for it to. I win I don't best think it's going to happen, and I worry that it will win editing. Oh, it is so. I uh, worry. I worry. It gives you a headache. I, it gives you a headache, but you know these people. All right. Well, back to the blog minds for us all. Thank you so much for hanging out, Jill. Thank you for having me. And on that note, we had the chance to talk to two of this year's Oscar nominees, David Byrne and Ryan Lott of Sunlux. Their song, This Is A Life with Mitski, is nominated for Best Original Song for the movie Everything Everywhere All At Once. We asked David and Ryan about how they approached scoring the movie, and David talked about what he finds inspiring in film music. It's kind of encouraging to me now that you see well, people like Song Lux being asked to score an entire feature film. There's an artist named Mika Levy. One of the scores that Mika Levy did was a film called Under the Skin. The score really helped create the mood on that. It's a science fiction film. <laughs> it's a horror film, I guess you could say. But what was done musically is way outside of that genre. And so spare, too, you know? Yes, yeah. Well, It's hard to do that. It's really hard to do that. It achieves this kind of really eerie effect. I remember a scene where she walks into her where she's taking people into some sort of pool of black liquid or whatever. <laughs> whatever. I don't, yeah, something like that. I thought, whoa, okay, okay. <laughs> Such an iconic scene. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and those, like, those spare, like, sounds of just those knocking things. Like, what? There's yeah, just, like, yeah, so many exactly. little uh, choices that are so perfect in that score. I love a movie score. I mean, I love, well, all those Fellini movies that Nina Rota did. The scores are so amazing in that, well, like when I first saw those movies, I was quite young and I thought, these are completely surreal. I have no idea what's going on here. It's just this barrage of strange images. Then you see it again a little bit later and you realize, no, everything you're seeing is very logical and it all, it's all kind of makes sense and it's all telling a story. It's just heightened a little bit. And then you realize that Nina Rocco's music is, of course, really catchy and melodic.
it doesn't evoke kind of strange and surreal most of the time. It's almost like a Neapolitan kind of music you'd hear at a little band show or something like that. With all the kind of surreal, strange images, you'd think you'd hear something really weird. And he gives you something completely from another place. The music really adds something because it's adding a completely other layer. Oh, that's so that's inspiring. That's inspiring to think about. I have to go check that out. Your Last Emperor score does that to some degree, yeah? A little bit, yes. Oddly enough, the cues that I did for Last Emperor are the ones that sound the most Chinese. The <laughs> <laughs> ones that Ryuichi Sakamoto did are the ones that sound the most like classic Western scores. Yeah, that's true, actually. That's a good, yeah. that's a good point. <laughs> You know, the closest thing we, when we were working on everything everywhere all at once, one of the tasks kind of like, or the charges we received from the Daniels early on was to cancel out the comedy, to not ever write music that was itself comedic. There's maybe one or two exceptions uh, that were very specific, but in general, any of the absurdity or humor, silliness, the music should ignore it and remain completely earnest and heartfelt, or in the case of action sequences, gone awry into the bizarre. We charge forward and still, you know, keep it as badass as possible. You know, our, our sound palette could be adventurous and like you've never heard before, but never funny in the way that often some of the action on screen is overtly funny. W working against it made it funnier. You know, listening to the score without the movie, um, some of these action sequences um, would feel more like life or death and less like a couple of guys running around with butt plugs <laughs> doing <Yes>. kung fu. <laughs> uh, or in the case, there's one there's one scene that's where one of Stephanie Hsu's characters, Jobu Tupaki, <laughs> you know, pulls out two enormous dildos and the music there we chose, um, and uh, Rafiq, my bandmate, spearheaded this one. The music we created was almost like this romantic, lush, like surge of kind of elegant romance um, as she whips these things out. <laughs> With each slam to the face or body of she makes with these uh, dildos, <laughs> there's this, there's another, you know, important chord as it ascends into this, and before cascading, and, and it, it was so so fun. <laughs> but if you listen to that cue without the visual, it's just, it just feels like some beautiful, yeah, like this elegant romance or something. <laughs> <laughs> The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast. You can read Jill Mates' writing at pitchfork.com, and you can find her on Twitter at Jillian underscore Mates. 
Catherine Fenelosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Ryan Domble is our showrunner. Jessica Grumalia is our music supervisor. I'm the editor of Pitchfork, Pooja Patel. Thanks for listening.